0: You're listening to Fresh Look with Henma Zieg, presented by the Israel on Campus Coalition. Welcome back to Fresh Look. Our featured guest for episode seven is Eliza Lewin, a prominent pro-Israel lawyer with an extensive career representing clients facing anti-Jewish and anti-Zionist discrimination. During the show, you'll hear more from Elisa about a range of pertinent legal topics related to Israel and Judaism, including how pro-Israel students are protected by the Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, Aliza Lewin is president of the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights under Law and co-founder and partner of Lewin & Lewin, LLP, where she has specialized in litigation, mediation, and government relations. She began her law career in Israel, where she was a law clerk to deputy president of the Supreme Court Justice Mash in and has represented numerous high-profile clients, including victims of religious discrimination. In 2014, Aliza orally argued Zemtoski v. Kerry, a Jerusalem passport case, before the U.S. Supreme Court. She's also past president of the American Association of Jewish Lawyers and Jurists and serves on the board of directors of the Women's Bar Association of the District of Columbia. Welcome to the show, Aliza.
1: Hello, Aliza. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you?
2: Wonderful. Hey, it's terrific to be here. Thank you.
1: It's so great to have you. Um, I know you for years and uh, I've been a uh, great admirer of everything you're doing and I think your work is just incredible and we're going to just dive right into it because there's so much to cover and we have such short time Uh, and you've been involved in the world of pro-Israel advocacy I think you mentioned that um, your dad was uh, crowned as the defender of the tribe once by the Jerusalem Post which I think is very interesting Uh, I'd love to hear about your upbringing, your work, what led you to where you are now to fight for the Jewish community and for Israel uh, in the legal arena and your your father and all this work that you've done with him?
2: So I grew up in an observant Jewish home. My father is a practicing attorney. Uh, He's a litigator. His expertise was really in the area of white collar criminal defense, but he always devoted and still does to this day. He's still working. We work together. A very significant portion of his professional time and expertise to work in cases that are really of interest and importance to the Jewish community. So whether it's the area of uh, religious discrimination, trying to make sure that Jews can practice their faith freely and with pride. So he has argued 28 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, and that includes the case that involved the right to wear a yarmulke in the military. It included the right to put up the large Chabad, uh, menorahs, Hanukkah menorahs on the public square. Um, so this is the the atmosphere that I grew up in, and I always knew that I wanted to someday be able to work with him uh, because he set that he set that model. I also, growing up, was very well aware that I felt personally my personal history um, conflated in many ways. The key. Uh, most important historic moments in recent Jewish history. So on my mother's side, my maternal grandmother was actually born in the old city of Jerusalem when it was still under Ottoman rule. She was a seventh generation Jerusalemite. My family came to Israel in the 1800s, um, recognizing that that really was our homeland and where we belonged. And then On my father's side, my father was actually born in Poland. He had to flee uh, right at the outset of the war. When he was three years old, his family smuggled across the border into Lithuania. And my father was one of the very first recipients of what they call the Sugihara visas. My grandmother was instrumental in opening up that avenue for Jews to flee um, across actually Russia to, um, to Japan. And that's how my grandparents and my father made it to the United States. But most of my grandparents' uh, families were killed in the Holocaust. So I always felt this sense of gratitude to the fact that I grew up in the United States, an American citizen with all of the benefits that that uh, bestows, right? And all of the opportunities. And always felt though this sense of obligation why was I given these, these opportunities and these skills? And I've always felt a need to be able to use those in a way to try and help the Jewish people.
1: And you're certainly doing a holy work for, for our community, and I think we all are grateful for everything you're doing. If there would be one or two cases that you've been involved with that are really meaningful to you, because you litigated many high profile uh, cases that related to Jewish issues, um, which one or two would that be? Can you can choose.
2: So, two that come to mind are uh, one was the case on behalf of the family of David Boym, who was a Uh, 17-year-old who was killed by Hamas gunmen in a drive-by shooting back in 1996. Uh, My father and I represented his family in what was a landmark lawsuit in the United States, which not only exposed the fundraising network for Hamas in the United States, but it created the legal precedent that's been used over and over again since then, uh, which has enabled victims of terror to bring suits in the United States against those domestic organizations that are providing material support for Hamas. We, we established that, that principle and that leading precedent in that case. The other case that I would say was particularly meaningful was one that's become known as the Jerusalem passport case. That's the Zivatovsky case. And that was the case that involved the right of an American citizen born in Jerusalem to have Israel listed as the place of birth on their U.S. passport. Many people don't realize that for decades, quite frankly, from 1948 all the way up until 2017, um, is w- the the formal position of the United States was not to recognize any part of Jerusalem as being in Israel, not east, not west, no part of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was formally treated by the United States as a separate entity, not in Israel. This was originally done in deference to the UN partition plan, which had envisioned Jerusalem as a corpus separatum, like this international city. Um, And so that was most evident, the US policy was most evident in the passport policy, because whereas the general rule for American passport holders is that if you're an American citizen born outside of the US, your country of birth is what's listed as your place of birth on your US passport. So if you have two American citizens and they're born and they're living in Paris and they have a child, that baby's passport will list France, just the country as the place of birth. For American citizens born in Tel Aviv or Haifa, their passports list Israel, just the country as the place of birth. But for American citizens born in Jerusalem, because the United States did not recognize Jerusalem as being in Israel, they would put Jerusalem on the passport instead of Israel because Jerusalem was a city without a country, so there was no country to list. The problem is the State Department's policy went further than that. It would bend over backwards to accommodate those individuals who were opposed to Israel's very existence. So for example, if you had an American citizen who was born in Haifa and their passport would say Israel, and they were opposed to having that listed as their place of birth on the passport, the State Department would accommodate them and would take Israel off the passport and would list Haifa instead. This went so far as to also agree for um, American citizens who were born in the area of Israel before 1948, so they could have been born in Tel Aviv or Haifa or Jerusalem or anywhere else in what's now considered Israel. If they requested it, the State Department would agree to list Palestine as the place of birth on their passport, even though the general rule required that the current sovereign be listed. As, this, as, as the place of birth. So, for example, for citizens born in Kiev, when it was part of the USSR, their passports list Ukraine as their place of birth. Right. They, but for for Israel, for Israel, the State Department is ready to make an exception and list Palestine for those who were born before
1: 1948. Was, so is there 2000- anything to this in any other country or is it just... No. in
2: terms of the current in terms of the current sovereign no, in terms of allowing people now to take the current sovereign off the passport, that was something that was explicitly when we began this lawsuit listed as something that was offered for citizens born in the area now known as Israel. It has since been broadened to so now anywhere in the world whether that um, you can take off the, uh, the country of birth. But what happened in our case is that congress actually passed a law in 2002 trying to correct this inequity and what they said in the law is that if an american citizen is born in jerusalem and they ask for their passport to say israel then the state department shall list israel as the place of birth but when that law was passed president bush issued a signing statement and said this piece of the law, because it was one part of a much larger law, we're not going to follow, because he said it impermissibly interferes with my exclusive authority as the president to engage in matters of foreign policy. A couple of weeks after that law was passed, a very old friend of mine uh, for years, not old in age, but old in length of time, (laughs) uh, gave birth to her, third child, her first child born in Israel, and the child was born in Jerusalem, in Sharid Tzedek Hospital, which is in a part of Jerusalem that's been under Israel's control since 1948. When I called her to wish her a Mazel Tov, I encouraged her and her husband to see what would happen if they requested Israel be listed as a place of birth on their child's American passport. And when they went to ask, they were told by the clerk that doesn't matter what they request, because of the signing statement, the passport is still going to come back saying Jerusalem. And sure enough, it did. And I joke that that is when Menachem bin Yamin Zivotowski became Lewin and Lewin's youngest pro bono client, not <laughs> even a year old. And we brought the case, which went up and down in the courts and went to the Supreme Court twice. My father argued it the first time. I argued it the second time. It became ultimately a major separation of powers question in the United States because there had never been before been a situation where you had the executive branch and the legislative branch squarely opposed on this issue. Congress was saying they had the authority to require the State Department to do this, and the executive branch was saying, no, Congress did not have this authority. At the end of the day, um, I argued the case. That is meaningful experience for me because honestly, it was not only my first oral argument for the Supreme Court, It was actually my first oral argument before any court. Um, The nature of my father's and my practice is that he loves litigation. He's always loved litigation. He loves going to court. I much prefer mediation and negotiation. And so the joke in our firm always was, you want to settle the case, go talk to Elisa, You want to litigate the case, go talk to her father. So the result of that was I would always sit second chair for my father in the oral arguments. But with the encouragement of my father and the client, I did do that oral argument. And um, and whereas my father won his first argument, I lost the second argument, which was very surprising to me, at least, because everyone was on our side. We had all 100 senators. If you can imagine anything today, having all 100 senators agree upon, all 100 senators filed an amicus brief in support of our case. Um, we had state's attorney generals, legal scholars, the whole Jewish community from right to left, orthodox conservative reform, everybody on our side. There were only three briefs filed on the other side, one by the Arab-American Anti-Discrimination Committee, which was filing its first brief in the whole case. In all 13 years, they'd never filed a brief. And the first time in the Supreme Court, we pointed it out, saying how important could this be if they've never, to them if they've never filed a brief, so they filed one. We had uh, a group called True Torah Jews, which are the Neturi Karta, mm-hmm. who opposed the existence of the modern state of Israel. They filed, and then a disgruntled taxpayer in California. That was it. So I was very surprised. I thought that we would win this argument, particularly because we gave the Supreme Court an out. We told them that they could do like what, and now we have Taiwan in the news again, but it's like what Congress did with Taiwan. Congress allowed people born in Taiwan to put Taiwan as their place of birth on their passport, and when that angered the Chinese, the State Department issued its disclaimer saying this doesn't change our foreign policy. We still recognize China as sovereign, but we're letting people identify as they choose. Do the same thing here. Let people who feel they're being born in Israel, they're sabras, let them put that on their passport. And if you wanna say this still, the status of Jerusalem still awaits diplomatic resolution and fine, do that. But the court didn't decide to go that way. The court instead said that Congress had gone too far because Congress was trying to push the executive branch to talk out of two sides of its mouth. On the one hand, it was trying to get the State Department to put on a passport that Jerusalem's in Israel. But on the other hand, you had the executive branch saying that Jerusalem wasn't in Israel. And an extreme example of that is when President Barack Obama delivered the eulogy for Shimon Peres um, on Har Herzl, on Mount Herzl, which is in a part of Israel, part of Jerusalem that's been under Israel's control since 1948. The White House issued a copy of the president's eulogy with the tagline Mount Herzl comma Jerusalem comma Israel. And a few hours later, the White House issued a corrected version of that eulogy with the only correction being a line strike through the word Israel, suggesting that Har Herzl, the Arlington Cemetery of Israel is somehow not in Israel. So the only thing that, it, the, well, one thing that the court did in addition when it struck it down is it then went further and said, and you know what? Even though, and we had provided all sorts of documentation and history showing that from George Washington through Abraham Lincoln, presidents never treated the recognition power as a power exclusive to the president, the Supreme Court held that this recognition power is exclusive to the president, that the president has the exclusive authority to recognize foreign sovereigns. I was actually devastated at that point. I thought, how did we lose And then I began to wonder maybe if my father had argued and I hadn't argued, would the outcome have been different. But you have to realize that this opinion was issued during the Obama administration. And nobody anticipated a president like President Donald Trump. And along came President Trump. And what he did is he recognized Jerusalem as the sovereign, as the capital of Israel. Sorry, he recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and the Golan Heights as being in Israel. And whereas many of your viewers may know that The knee-jerk reaction of attorneys to pretty much everything that President Trump did was to run into court, to file for injunctions, to block it from having any effect. They filed lawsuits about his his, uh, immigration policies, healthcare policies, tax policies, how he runs his hotel. Hundreds of lawsuits were filed. And yet not one single lawsuit was filed challenging his recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel or his recognition of the Golan Heights as being in Israel. And there's one reason for that. That's our lawsuit. Because in the Zivotovsky case, the Supreme Court of the United States held that the president of the United States has the exclusive authority to recognize foreign sovereigns. So when President Trump did that, he was exercising and utilizing an authority that the US Supreme Court had already held was exclusively his. So unless and until there's another president who turns around and decides to recognize sovereignty differently, that is the formal legal position of the United States, is that the Golan Heights is part of Israel and that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. In October 2020, as a result of that is when we finally got the passport policy changed. And the ambassador, the US ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, at a ceremony gave our client, Menachem Binyamin Zivatovsky, who was now turning 18 years old at the time, Uh the very first US passport to formally list Israel as the place of birth for a citizen born in Jerusalem. And now the policy is that any American citizen who requests it, the State Department will list Israel as their place of birth on the US passport. That has to be the most meaningful case I've argued to date.
1: It sure it sounds like it. And it's amazing that it's a case that you didn't even win but still have such an impact on generations to come. Uh, That's amazing. What an incredible story Uh, and so inspirational. And I think another big case that have made the news recently is the Ben and Jerry's uh, case where uh, Ben and Jerry's decided, well, Ben Jerry's that is now owned by Unilever, or now not owned by Unilever, you'll explain all of this to us in a second, um, has decided to boycott Israel or to join the boycott movement. Um, it's a bit confusing to some of our viewers and because you have been so involved and, and uh, was able to um, change the resolution. Oh, I mean, There's so much to it. Why won't you get, take us through the whole uh, case uh, in the short time we have?
2: Sure. Let me try and clear up the confusion about Ben & Jerry's. So Avi Zinger is the key to clearing up this confusion. Avi Zinger is the manufacturer and distributor of Ben and Jerry's ice cream in Israel. Avi Zinger, many years ago, before most people in the United States even knew what Ben and Jerry's was, he brought Ben and Jerry's to Israel. He had been living in the States. For years, and his his children got to be school-aged, wanted to move back to Israel. I was trying to think of what's a business that I could bring to Israel. And he tasted this brand new ice cream that had come out of Vermont. And he said, Oh, premium ice cream, they don't even know what that is in Israel, right? High quality premium ice cream. I'll try, let's see if I could bring this to Israel. So we actually met with Ben Cohn and pitched the idea to him. And Ben thought it was a wonderful idea. And so with a contract that was under three pages long is how they originally arranged for Avi Zinger to become the licensee. He was not even a franchisee. He was the only licensee that Ben & Jerry's had even to this day um, around the world. And what he did is he actually has now a factory in Israel. He initially rented space in a factory, but now has his own factory where he manufactures the Ben & Jerry's ice cream using the same ingredients, they're sourced from the same place, the same formulations, he would manufacture the same Ben & Jerry's ice cream in Israel he would sell it. It's one of the reasons why Israel is the only place where you can get kosher for Passover, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, because he kosher's his factory for Passover. And he even makes a special Passover flavor called harose, which you can't get anyplace else in the world. But that's Avi Zinger. What happened is about a decade ago, the Boycott Divestment and Sanctions movement, the BDS movement, started pressuring Ben and Jerry's in Vermont to stop and end its relationship with this licensee in Israel with their distributor. They started with letters to the company. They increased and ultimately started with online petitions. And then they went and targeted the free cone days, which are the days that the different um, shops, the Ben and Jerry shops around the country give out free ice cream. And so you have lines of people down the street waiting for their ice cream cone. They started handing out leaflets to all these people with very antagonistic deceptive flyers criticizing the fact that Ben and Jerry's was selling in in Israel and particularly in Judea and Samaria on the West Bank. And so the pressure grew and the company continuously pushed back against it until in May 2021, as we know, there was the uh, conflict with Hamas in Gaza. And online, as I know you saw, were very everything exploded. The pressure mounted to unbearable levels. And it was soon after that, that the Ben and Jerry's board in Vermont was insisting that Avi Zinger had to stop his sales over the Green Line. And that meant that he had to stop distributing his ice cream in East Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, in the West Bank, including in Palestinian cities where he was selling it.
1: Right, and that's the board that is the, uh, are they like the board of directors of the company or? So what what?
2: happened is in 2000, Unilever merged with Ben & Jerry's. As part of that agreement, they agreed that there would be an independent board of directors of Ben & Jerry's in Vermont that would still have a say in matters of the company's social mission that's the independent board that we're talking about. And so Ben and Jerry's in Vermont pushed this pressure on Avi. Avi Zinger said, I can't do that because that's, I can't stop those sales because that's a violation of international, of Israeli, sorry, that's a violation of Israeli law. Israeli law not only has an anti-boycott law, it also has an anti-discrimination law just like we have in the United States, which says that when it comes to the provision of products and services, You can't discriminate. You can't discriminate. And it has a whole list of categories, just like we have in the United States, talks about how you can't discriminate on the basis of race or color or national or ethnic origin or gender, the whole list that we have and more. And in Israel, it also includes residents. In other words, you cannot discriminate and say, I will not provide you services based on where you live. And that's what they were asking Avi to do. Avi distributes now all of the major supermarket chains in Israel, as well as all the little mini markets at the gas stations across the country and different food service providers, what they were saying is they wanted him to stop distributing it over the green line. The irony is that the community that would have been harmed the most by that are the Palestinians. Because the Palestinians, quite frankly, are the largest consumers of the Ben & Jerry's product in those areas, they are the ones When you talk about supermarkets, for instance, like Rami Levy, the Rami Levy chain that's on the seam line, the Palestinian consumers love going to Rami Levy because they get there a variety of products and better pricing than they get in the Palestinian cities. So what you would be doing is cutting off their access there as well as the access in their cities to the Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And Avi Zinger said, no, I refuse to do it. Avi also, you have to realize, was consistently throughout his time at Ben & Jerry's, he embodied the Ben & Jerry social mission. He was always supporting coexistence projects, some of the most amazing coexistence projects, actually. One of them, um, for example, is a program called Meet, the Middle Eastern Entrepreneurs of Tomorrow. It's a program that's actually run with MIT in University in Boston. And what it does is it brings together Palestinian and Israeli high school students for three summers in a row. So they come multiple years throughout their high school experience. Um, and over those three years, you could see the relationships between the students grow. They not only were taught entrepreneurial skills and about business and how to develop businesses, and, um, but they also had the extended opportunity to share narratives and to really develop bonds. This, of course, is the real way towards peace. Well, what happened is Avi not was instrumental in this program. They not only brought the students to come visit the factory, uh, they used the Ben and Jerry's model as a business model. He also helped judge some of their final projects. Uh, one year, he brought the Ben and Jerry's board to the graduation ceremony, where the Ben and Jerry's board actually saw the Palestinian families and the Israeli families sitting together in the same room as their children graduated together from this program. And they thought it was terrific. There was one year where the, um, the program lost some of its funding, and it was in jeopardy. And uh, Avi Zinger arranged for Ben and Jerry's to give a $100,000 donation to the organization to make sure that the program could continue. So it was programs like this that Avi would support and was instrumental in supporting, which what happened, right, to go back, sorry, to what happened is when Avi refused to stop the sales of his ice cream and said, I can't do it. You're demanding that I break Israeli law. The response from Ben and Jerry's was, well, if that's the case, we're going to have to end our almost 35 year relationship. You have to realize that Avi Zinger had been selling, manufacturing and selling the Ben and Jerry's ice cream in Israel for almost 35 years. It was a given that his license would be renewed year after year. And in fact, they'd assured him it was going to be renewed this time as well. But after the pressure mounted in May of 2021, and he refused to give in and to stop the sales in the territories, they said, you know what? When your license expires now at the end of December 2022, we are not going to renew it. Now, what you have to realize is there are people who say that this was only going to be a settlement boycott. That's really disingenuous, because if Avi Zinger's license was not renewed at the end of this year, then come January 1, 2023, there'd be no Ben & Jerry's ice cream anywhere in all of Israel, because he wouldn't be able to manufacture and sell it anywhere. So what was really happening was a full boycott of all of Israel by Ben & Jerry's starting January 1, 2023. That's what the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement wanted and that's what the Ben & Jerry's board was actually putting into effect. That's when the Brandeis Center got involved and we brought a lawsuit on behalf of Avi Zinger against both Unilever and the Ben & Jerry's board saying, and this is the very straightforward legal theory of our case, we said you cannot as a condition of a contract, require one party to the contract to do something that's illegal. That's what they were requiring of Avi. They were saying the only way your license will be extended and renewed is if you agree to break the law. Yeah. He said, I can't do that. Under American law, that's an invalid demand. That's an unlawful demand. You can't make that a demand of your contract. And that's what they were basically doing. And they acknowledged in the suit, there was no other reason for refusing to renew his license, other than the fact that he was refusing to stop the sales across the Green Line. So we brought that lawsuit and that's what ultimately led to the negotiations that led to the settlement. And to Avi's credit, Avi realized very early on that this matter went way beyond just a business dispute between him and Unilever Ben & Jerry's, that this was a matter of importance to the Jewish people That he really, that any resolution that he worked out had to encompass a response to this boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. And so that's what he did. And the result is that Unilever turned around and not only publicly stated its opposition to the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, but What it did is it made it impossible now for this movement to do what it wanted to do. The movement wanted to stop all sales of Ben and Jerry's in Israel, anywhere in Israel. And what Unilever now did with its agreement is it's arranged that Avi Zinger has the ability and will be able to continue selling Ben and Jerry's ice cream throughout Israel for as long as he is able and interested and willing and wants to sell the Ben and Jerry's product in Israel. What they did is they sold to Avi their uh, Hebrew and Arabic uh, trademarks so that now Avi Zinger will be selling the exact same ice cream he has been manufacturing and selling all along, the same Ben & Jerry's ice cream sourced from the same places. Um, It will just now be under the Hebrew and the Arabic trademarks. From now, he has that right, from now until eternity.
1: Wow. And that there's nothing that they can do to reverse this decision or to appeal.
2: So it is a done deal. Unilever is standing behind it. And the beautiful thing now is that Unilever is now defending this deal with Avi Zinger against the Ben and Jerry's independent board, which turned around and actually filed a lawsuit trying to undo the deal. But they can't undo the deal because it's a done deal. And Unilever had the authority to do what it did. So Unilever has now made it impossible for the for the BDS movement to succeed in removing Ben and Jerry's ice cream from Israel. And they, they, they have their internal issues that they have to resolve with their independent board, but the independent board is not going to succeed in, um, in 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 any way restricting or limiting Avi's ability to sell the Ben and Jerry's ice cream in Israel.
1: Brava, amazing! And what would that mean for the BDS movement and for other companies considering boycotting Israel or, you know, boycotting only parts of Israel? Than will lead to boycotting all of Israel.
2: I think this serves as a really strong message to other companies. It's not. It doesn't pay, right? BDS. What it really demonstrates and what I think Unilever really understood um, is that BDS is really empty, negative rhetoric. Avi Zinger has accomplished so much more towards peace and coexistence in the projects that he has supported in the work that he has done, right? That's the real movement towards peace. BDS is harming, not helping the people that they claim to wanna support. And I, I said this in the past and I you know, stand by it. What Unilever did was the absolute moral correct and right thing to do. Um, and they are, they are standing on the side of justice. It's BDS that is on the wrong side of this equation. And I think that this will send a message to other companies that will begin to realize that it does not pay to support or cooperate with BDS. That's not the side to be on if you want to help promote peace and coexistence.
1: Right. Right on. And I think that's also the message that you're trying to relate to students and universities that um, are handling situation where Jewish students are being discriminated. Um, and just last week, the Office for Civil Rights announced that they would investigate the claim you helped Rose Rich file against USC. Um, has this been a successful avenue for pro-Israel students to seek resources uh, when they've been discriminated against uh, on campus for being Zionist and what are some other trends that you're seeing on campus um, where Jewish students are being targeted because I mean of course we're hearing that it's not uh, that Jewish students are not targeted and it's just political and it's political arguments uh, and we all know truly that the meaning of this I think uh, I remember if few years back you you had an amazing conversation with me on the phone when you told me you know you can't really separate zionism for judaism this is part of our identity and i think you articulated so well and it still carries that with me um but yeah what what do you make of the situation on college campuses today
2: so you just you just summarized right now what i think is one of the most important key pieces which is um that and this is what the Rose Rich case which you mentioned at USC has really helped highlight and that is that what is happening today on many campuses is that Jewish students who feel this affinity to Israel that grows out of their Jewish identity. Their Zionism is a celebration to them of what it means to be part of the Jewish people and to understand and recognize that our Jewish history and our Jewish heritage is completely and totally inextricably intertwined with the land of Israel. We can't separate that from who we are, what our our heritage is, what our Jewish heritage is. That is not a statement right, about what our opinions are about the current policies of the current government of Israel. Right now, what's happening on campus, it doesn't matter what students' opinions are of the current policies. If they just believe Israel has a right to exist as the Jewish homeland, if that's what they support and they feel that sense of pride in their Jewish peoplehood, they're suddenly shunned. They're called racists. They're called colonialist oppressors and they're pushed out of uh, the, the community and the clubs and the organizations or the efforts that they wanna be involved in because they wanna be able to engage on these issues that concern them, whether they involve immigration rights, women's rights, LGBT rights, climate change, any of those communities. Very often what the Jewish students are being told is, wait a minute, you wanna demonstrate with us? You wanna join our organization? We'll accept you on one condition. Get rid of that sense of your identity, right? That Zionism piece. First, disavow Israel, distance yourself from Israel, condemn Israel, and then you'll be welcome. But that's no different than telling a Catholic student that they have to disavow the Vatican or a Muslim student that they have to distance themselves from Mecca, right? What people have to understand is that, well, yes, not all Jews are Zionists, but by the same token, not all Jews are Sabbath observers, right? And yet, You don't yourself have to be a Sabbath observer to understand that marginalizing or shunning or discriminating against somebody because they are a Sabbath observer, and excluding them because they are a Sabbath observer is unlawful discrimination. Mm -hmm. By the same token, you don't yourself have to be a Zionist to realize that for those Jews for whom Zionism is an integral part of their Jewish identity, if you're going to marginalize or exclude them or shun them on that basis, that's also unlawful harassment and discrimination. And what we're seeing today, as opposed to a few years ago when we had that conversation, is more and more and more students are starting to talk about their Zionism that way. And the more and more students who talk about Zionism that way, who explain, wait a minute, You are pushing me away from the table based on part of my Jewish identity. You're telling me I don't don't belong because of my Jewish identity. That's unacceptable. At a time today where we say everyone needs to be welcome to sit at the table with their full identity. We, they should bring their full identity to the table. We celebrate them in their full identity. It can't be that Jews are the only ones who aren't welcomed with our full identity. That's the way students have to begin to push back. They have to say it is not acceptable for you to demand that I shed a key part of who I am in order to be engaged in society today. And we're starting to see that. And what's happened with the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Education that opened up the investigation into Rose Rich's complaint. Rose Rich was a student who had been elected to serve as the vice president of her student government at USC. And she ended up, two years ago, there was a massive campaign, an online campaign and social media that started to try and push her out of her position. Why? Because they discovered she was a Zionist. And as a Zionist, well, then she must be racist. And if she's racist, then she's not fit to serve as the vice president of our student government. They even went so far as to file an impeachment complaint and schedule an impeachment hearing. It wasn't until the Brandeis Center got involved that the university called off, at least that, pushed off, I should say, that impeachment hearing. But the university didn't give Rose Rich the public support that she needed at the time. And as a result, she ended up having to resign. But her story raised awareness of what it means to be pushed out and excluded on the basis of the Zionist part of your Jewish identity. She started that very public national discussion, which now is much more commonplace. And to see the mainstream media coverage of the fact that the Office for Civil Rights has now opened up an investigation into that complaint is Remarkable, because what it shows is that the country is beginning, just beginning to recognize that form of harassment and discrimination. And so we're making progress. We're making real progress. And the students can continue to make that progress by talking about this in a way that makes people understand and see the harassment and discrimination that's taking place, because that moves it away from this misconception from the people who just think that it's a political debate They think that people are just engaging in dialogue. They're not engaging in dialogue. In fact, very often what's happening to the Jewish students is they wanna engage in dialogue and with this anti-normalization policy, they're being told, no, we're not gonna talk to you. Instead, they're being shunned. They're being excluded. And we have to, it is our obligation to continue to highlight and show the university administrators that that's what's happening. Because once they understand it, they act. They act because they really don't want they they don't want anybody on their on their campus to be shunned or marginalized or excluded. It helps that it's also against the law, and they have to um, protect students from that kind of harassment and discrimination. But they really do want to make sure that that doesn't happen to their students.
1: Right. So the
2: students, if they continue to articulate it that way, I think will be much more successful in being heard.
0: Right.
1: That's uh, that's amazing, um, and I think it's so important to also frame this as uh, Zionism is uh, it's a civil rights for also for the Jewish people. And it, like every community, you know, comes to mind for me that in the gay community, there are uh, gay couples that are against gay marriage. They are against same-sex marriage, and they advocate against same-sex couple adopting kids. But I never hear them being pushed forward the same way that anti-Zionists are being pushed forward, although they are a minority from both communities. And the same with the feminist movement, there's some women that have of anti-feminist ideas and they are not the ones that are being pushed forward and I think this sort of tokenism is something that we're seeing being done only to the Jewish community I'm really hopeful because it sounds like you're hopeful and uh, we have just uh, one minute but I wanted to ask if you have any other message to uh, to our listeners many of them are college students and um, that are perhaps want to bring up legal cases but they are afraid of the backlash um, what would be your advice to them
2: So I learned and I took away from the Zivotofsky case, a couple of really important personal lessons. One of them was to not be afraid to push myself outside of my comfort zone. To say that it was nerve wracking for my first oral argument ever to be an oral argument before the Supreme Court is putting it mildly. That was way outside my comfort zone. Um, And yet it was probably one of the most important decisions I've ever made both professionally and personally. The second is to never, ever give up. What I thought was my biggest loss turned into a tremendous success story. And the third is to realize that from our perspective, we don't always know what the ultimate outcome will be. We don't always know the ripple effects, the ultimate ripple effects of our actions. We just have to have faith that if we continue to work and do and move, in that direction will have that ultimate positive impact. And so I, to this extent that I can let you know that there are resources there for you like the Brandeis Center, like Khen, right? We're here for you. Have that confidence to push yourself outside the comfort zone. Don't give up and have confidence that what you're doing now is ultimately going to have very significant ripple effects down the road.
1: I think you equated once uh, in, in another quote we had about to the, the Harry Potter book where they're going back in time and they're changing something and it, they don't even realize how something very small can change the whole future, uh, just like it happened to you. Aliza, we are so grateful. I mean, on behalf of the Jewish people uh, in the past, and in the future to come, generations to come, I think we'll benefit from your work. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Thank you for your time and best of luck fighting for us.
2: Thank you so much, Cheyne. All the best to you, too. Much hatzalacha and bracha.
1: Thank you. Thanks for tuning
0: in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to our channels and stay tuned for the next episode of Fresh Look.